you know, I'm a passionate believer in the London market and a passionate supporter of Lloyd's. And I believe genuinely in, in the Lloyd's infrastructure. We could never have started our business anywhere else but Lloyd's in the way that we did it. Hello, and thanks for joining me on this week's episode of the Instec London podcast. Matthew Grant here, one of the partners at Instec London. And this week, we have a real treat for you. I'm talking to a very well-known figure from the London insurance market, John Kavanagh, who retired from leading one of the largest reinsurance brokers in 2017, only to re-emerge to co-found a startup, Beat Capital. This has rapidly established itself as a home for entrepreneurial underwriters across a range of insurance classes and proving it's never too late to start a new business. We cover a lot of topics in this one, so it's a bit longer than usual, but still less than one minute for every year of John's career. John, delighted to have a chance to talk to you. You have got a career of, I believe, 45 years in insurance. You've been working in London, USA, and Bermuda, and, and more broadly. You spent a lot of your time at RK Carville, where you were joint CEO. Then you were at Willis Re when you retired, although it wasn't complete retirement, because, of course, now you have founded B Capital with Tom Milligan, which is a capital investment vehicle supporting MGA startups. Now, we first met about 20 years ago, and at that time, you were... What I think probably one of the people I could count on the fingers of one hand who really went deep into technology and really sort of understood the future of it. Of it. So it's, it's great to see how things have evolved. Uh, anyways, let's talk a bit about Beats. So uh, what's it like running a startup? Yeah, it's great, actually. I mean, it's very energizing starting a business. I did it once before back in 1984, actually, with three partners, and we formed uh, an umbrella boat broker under the auspices of Minette. You know, back in the day, you weren't allowed to start your own Lloyd's broker from day one. You had to be umbrellaed. So my first new new startup effectively was back then, and, and we had such fun doing that. So I had very fond memories of the whole process of starting a business. So when I retired from Willis Ree in 2017, I certainly wasn't ready to retire full-time. I felt as though I'd done as much as I could on the broking side um, and ran one of the big three firms in that regard. So I felt like doing something quite different and – the rationale behind the startup of Beat, I mean, number one, I've always been a great fan of my partner, Tom Milligan. He's an outstanding underwriter. I just, I felt as though we'd make a very good duo. Uh, we both got very different skill sets. Uh, but we had a shared belief that there was a lack of opportunities for young, uh, talented entrepreneurs uh, within the global insurance market and not just in London. So we felt as though if we could start something that gave a platform to entrepreneurs, that would be a very worthy thing to do. Um, I'm, I'm slightly in the twilight of my career. Tom is 10 years younger than me. But, you know, certainly this for me was one of the things I've always wanted to do. Um, you know, I have made very strong views known that, you know, we, we were in the London market the place to go for entrepreneurial startups. And through regulation and cost and scale issues, um, yeah, we've we've lost that mantle. So in our own small way, we wanted to try and reinstate that somehow. So we've created in, an incubator platform uh, that allows young, talented entrepreneurs to start their own businesses. We give them significant equity in what they do. 
Uh, we give them a lot of freedom. They run their own business. And we provide them with infrastructure, guidance and support and capital. So we finance their businesses as part of what we deliver. And we give them underwriting capital. We've got the benefit of an upswinging market at the moment. So it's always nice to have a bit of fortuitous tailwind and whatever you do. This is my first foray into underwriting, uh, which has been an interesting switch. Um, I would be dangerous with a stamp in my hand, but my, I'm very happy to say my partner is not. Um, so it makes for a nice pairing, actually. And, you know, we've added a third partner, a chap called Paul Rayner, who's an outstanding individual uh, with, a, with a financial markets background. So, you know, we've got skill sets in underwriting financial markets and distribution, which is my forte. And it makes for quite a powerful combination. So, uh, yeah, we're making very good progress. And it's a very, very exciting thing to do, start one's own business. No, I mean, it's tremendous to, to see that success. And you've certainly been getting more visibility in the last few months. I think when you started off, you were uh, attracting underwriters that had existing relationships and bringing those in. But are you also looking at a slightly more sort of entrepreneurial model where you're prepared to incubate people with good ideas, but maybe not quite such strong established networks to, to bring to you? So the initial model was based upon finding top decile underwriting talent that wanted to start their own business. Um, and that was an easy start for us because we knew where that talent was um, and we had a framework to deal with that. So now that we've established that platform, and in fact, we started five businesses um, uh, since we started in 2017. We were incorporated in May 17. Um, but now we're looking further afield at opportunities outside top decile underwriting. So we will look at portfolio risk and we will look at fintech opportunities. In fact, we're working on one right now, which is a um, sort of pseudo fintech opportunity where we're combining loyalty structures uh, with insurance risk and with distributing using the loyalty product. So yeah, we're not wedded or, or tied down to any particular type of business now. Now we've got the framework established. You know, we can look at portfolio risk, we can look at fintech. As long as it's a, a good idea and the people are good and the talent is there, you know, whether it be underwriting talent or technical talent, yeah, we'll take a look at all those types of businesses. And we know that the framework works and we have the capacity, underwriting capability uh, to make these things work and bring them together. And some of the most interesting offerings now are where organisations are coming from outside of insurance and bringing clients, bringing analytics. And so you mentioned that sort of loyalty product there and, and the fintech. Can you just talk a little bit more about what, what that is? Sure. So, I mean, the loyalty um, phenomena is, has been around for a long time and it's you know, driven largely by retail enterprises, you know, or airlines or whatever. Uh, but it's never really been adapted to insurance. So we've basically got uh, sight of an established loyalty model that works in a number of different industries. And we think this has application to the insurance industry. Um, and we're looking at a particular market where uh, the brokers are struggling to survive because the insurance companies in that region are going direct on home, auto and SME. Um, and the brokers are struggling to compete with that. So what we're trying to provide here is a product that gives the brokers some degree of leverage against this sort of move towards direct selling by, by the big insurance companies in the area. Um, so the brokers are really delighted with this product. And we give the broker the power to distribute the loyalty so that they can use that in a number of different ways. It can be different products that you accumulate. It can be an e-wallet that you build, or it can be discounts on your insurance premiums. 
and it leaks into different lifestyle benefits and things like that. So it's a pretty well-trodden path, but like most things, you know, the insurance industry has been very pedestrian in adapting some of these technologies. But we think that this one has got real legs, particularly in the market that we're looking at. So, yeah, it's quite exciting. But, you know, what we're not trying to do here is reinvent the wheel or come up with a, an untested fintech. Yeah, we're looking at something that is tried and tested, that is proven, and it does have legs. So all we're really doing is adapting that to our industry. And we've been so slow as an industry in picking up on some of these things. And that's not just in the loyalty area, it's broad technology, you know, compared to other industries. Yeah, like the gamification is, of course, increasingly widespread across all industries. We're starting to see it coming in now to life and health, people using wearables to get reductions on their insurance premiums or get free cinema tickets. Kind of interesting to hear that you're also seeing that angle. And of course, you mentioned there in passing the brokers being in Lloyd's, you're 100% in Lloyd's, presumably, so you, you, are, you have to sell through a broker market. Is that right? Well, well we use 100% Lloyd's capacity. We, we're not necessarily wedded to the Lloyd's broker network. In fact, on the contrary, you know, we don't have to use that. Um, I mean, by, by coincidence, some of the, business that, the businesses that we started early doors are dependent on the Lloyd's wholesale network and retail network. But, you know, that doesn't mean that everything we do will be the case. You know, we're looking at a global distribution system, you know, where necessary. Lloyd's is a market that we're very familiar with. You know, I'm a passionate believer in the London market and a passionate supporter of Lloyd's. And I believe genuinely in, in the Lloyd's infrastructure. We could never have started our business anywhere else but Lloyd's in the way that we did it. You know, what we didn't want to do is take private equity money, largely because there's a short-term time horizon typically associated with that, certainly in fintech industries or financial service industries. And, you know, our business is a long-duration play. You know, so we funded this business with partners and loans and debt. Um, but what that gives us is time control. And it gives us, you know, great sanctity over our own business. Um, so I think we're, we're well set up um, to run the business the way we want to run it, but we could never have done it anywhere else but London. And that's why I'm such a passionate believer in finding ways in which we can create entrepreneurial startups, because I've just been the beneficiary of that. Uh, and it is very doable, and it can be done at low cost. Um, but the infrastructure within the market's not helpful. I'd love to make some changes to that. Okay, well, we'll come on to that in a minute. I just want to pick up on a, on a couple of those. So when you say you could only have done it in London, I, I'm assuming that's because you get access to the Lloyd's license that allows you to write Correct. anywhere. You've got the, just the, the physical connections here with people. You've got the, the fact that you've got the Lloyd Central Fund that's, that's going to, um, to back you up. But there's a lot of soul-searching going on now, both within Lloyd's and people looking at it externally. Yeah. How should the organization balance that ability to allow people to be entrepreneurial and go out and seek new opportunities and underwrite the risks that others may not have the... Uh, ability or desire to write, but at the same time managing the capital constraints in there. Uh, you know, how, how well do you think Lloyd's is sort of handling that challenge and getting back to its roots of, of allowing the entrepreneurs to flourish whilst not putting the whole of the market at risk? Well, I think, I think Lloyd's was slightly overtaken by circumstance over the last 25 years. I mean, if you go back to some of the challenges Lloyd's had uh, around the asbestos pollution and health hazard phenomena in the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, what that promoted was significant change in the market infrastructure. 
So we had to deal with the problem first, which was not straightforward. But then I think we recognised that the capital structure within Lloyd's, the private capital structure, the names, were not going to sustain Lloyd's over the long term in its current form. So we then went down the global capital route, um, and that's really the path that we've been down now for some considerable period. Um, and ally that with increasing regulation, um, scalability of businesses, the whole vertical integration of the insurance market, it's slightly overtaken what Lloyd's is all about. So if you look at the demographics in Lloyd's now, and I, I looked at this very recently for a speech I made, um, two-thirds of the market, if not 70% of the market, um, is, is basically global participants with no head office in London. You know, only 23%-ish um, of the Lloyd's businesses have head offices in the London market. So what that connotes is that most of the people uh, involved in the Lloyd's market now have multi-platform strategies, you know, not just the Lloyd's strategy, and that's fine. But I do believe there should be a balance in there of people that actually are predominantly focused in London and Lloyd's. Um, and I think there's been too far a swing the other way. And it will be nice to find ways in which we can adjust that. And I think the way we adjust that is at grassroots level. And I think we look to green shoots, entrepreneurial startups to start rebuilding that market profile. Um, so I think it's fundamental that Lloyd's needs to address this. And I think they are trying very hard to address it. Um, but I think circumstance overtook Lloyd's a bit. You know, it lost its mojo in terms of some of the, you know, value propositions it offered, particularly to entrepreneurs. And, you know, you look at some of the great names in Lloyd's, you know, going back to the, the Hiscox family, Syndicate and Michael Miko and Catlin and Beasley, et cetera, et cetera. They all started as very small startups in Lloyd's. Now, that still represents a very large proportion of the Lloyd's market. I think over half the Lloyd's market started as single person entrepreneurs you know so we've got to be able to recreate that looking at the work that's being done now around the future of Lloyd's um, you know I think since John Neal's come on board and John Hancock um, and Bruce Carnegie Brown I think we've probably got the best executive team we've had for a long time uh, leading the market um, and I think the work they've done around the future of Lloyd's is very worthy and there are elements of what they've done uh, particularly syndicate in a box and lead follow that could be quite revolutionary, you know, if we adapt those very good ideas to practical realities. Um, and that's what we'd like to involve ourselves in. You know, we're, we're great believers in, you know, the syndicate in a box philosophy. Um, and, you know, I think there's a lot of good work being done to restore the entrepreneurial spirit in the market. But I think it's more about balance in the market. And I think balance will be created by entrepreneurialism. You know, I'd love to see a sort of 50-50 split or even a 60-40 split towards businesses that are wholly dependent on the London market. And I think what that will do is restore creativity. It will restore market spirit. Um, it will promote a collective market view. And obviously, we need to be sensitive about antitrust and all that. But notwithstanding that, you know, we are a market and the market has a view. Um, and I think we've lacked a bit of that. And I think more importantly, we need people in the market that care, that care about London, that care about Lloyd's, that care about the London market's position in the global insurance market, which is very powerful. Um, and, you know, I, for one, in our own small way with Beat, are looking to promote entrepreneurs that will 
principally operate in and around the London market and restore that entrepreneurial spirit. It's a really interesting angle, which probably you don't hear enough of, which is this idea that not just Lloyd's, the corporation positioning itself and its role, but actually the people within Lloyd's who are doing the underwriting are proud to be part of it. And as you you sort of imply, making a choice about where they go for capital and and feeling good about what they're seeing there. I mean, are you, as you look around, are you seeing underwriters out there that are going to be the Stephen Catlins or the Robert Hiscox of the future? You think have really got the ability to not just... You know, do their own niche business, but really you know, take a leadership position on a, on a global level in the, in the years ahead? Yeah, I do. I mean, I've been really inspired by some of the talent that we've seen come through our doors. You know, we probably, since we started in 2017, we've seen over 100 and odd, 120 plans, you know, from young people looking to want to start their own business. So the very fact that these people are out there seemingly looking to do something on their own is very brave, number one, and very confident that, you know, they've got the wherewithal and the confidence in their own plan to go out and do that. So I'm I'm very encouraged by the sort of entrepreneurial enthusiasm in in the market. But I've also been very impressed by the level of talent. You know, I mean, obviously it varies, but at the very, very sharp end of our market, I'm very encouraged by some of the young people coming through. I mean, they've all had good grounding and good training um, you know, with some of the bigger syndicates, obviously. But, um, you know, they've got a real sense of risk-taking. They've got a real sense of enterprise, of, of business per se, not just head-down underwriting. They understand the concept of business, which is important. Um, so, yeah, I've been really encouraged by the quality of what we've seen. I mean, we started five businesses, and I'm really encouraged by some of the people we've been able to attract. But it gives me you know, on, on the grander scale, such enthusiasm about the future of the market. I still think that London and Lloyd's um, is the focal point for underwriting talent, you know, because we've got so many people in one market um, and we all learn from each other. I mean, that is the beauty of subscription. That is the beauty of a collective market view. Um, that, is a, that is the beauty of the sort of history that is Lloyd's. I completely agree. I mean, we, we see a lot of, you know, the same people or similar people. I, Really interesting that point about risk taking because, on the one hand, yeah, I think everyone today would recognise that data is really valuable. It's important to do analytics, but we're starting to see a slight theme coming through now, which is that risk are going over prescriptive in terms of how people are making choices. And your point about you said one of the elements of talent of an underwriter is the ability to understand the, the risk, and so. Are you seeing the ability I mean, in, in the marketplace, both as tolerance for and ability to make an underwriting decision that it has to both balance what's available in terms of the analytics, but actually also knowing when it's okay to take a risk, possibly because it, you, you, you can sort of manage the aggregation or it, the capital is still going to be protected, but, but it can't always be determined by the ability to analyze things to the nth degree of detail before you can make a decision. Uh, Well, I think that analytics have brought such um, phenomenal insight into risk-taking. You know, I I began my career when there was no analytic data and we were looking at market share and some very basic measurements of of exposure and risk. Um, And the market really did depend on instinct as the primary underwriting tool. Um, And, you know, 
some people's instincts are better than others. But um, the advent of, of modeling around catastrophe, exposure management, um, and availability of data generally has, has made us much more informed. So I think we're much more of an informed industry than we've ever been. Um, I think that our use of data is still very patchy. Uh, I think the manner in which we collect data and manage it and store it and distribute it is very patchy. Yeah, there's lots of work that needs to be done around the system of insurance in terms of how we use what we've got and how we distribute what we've got. But, you know, the, the progress that we've made in certainly in the last 25 years has been phenomenal, you know, really since the advent, you know, post-Hurricane Andrew of cap modelling, you know, when that really came to the fore in 1993. Um, you know, before that, we had no analytical capability whatsoever. I mean, the brokers had absolutely no capability um you know i look at my time at willis re i mean that was the fastest growing area of our business you know we had 200 analysts when i left um and they were embedded within the business they were a fundamental part of what we delivered because we'd shifted from a broker to an advisor and the analytic support that we needed for that was fundamental um so i think that Instinct in underwriting is still very important. I mean, my partner, Tom, has phenomenal instinct, but he also looks at the data very closely. Um, and I don't think you can ever lose instinct because sometimes the data only tells part of the story and then you've got to trust your judgment. You know, so I still believe it's a combination of the two, but I do think we're a better informed world than we've ever been. Uh, and that is particularly relevant for taking risk. And, and, and with Beats, so when you look out there at the opportunities, and I know Tarion is one of the early companies you, you brought in looking at cyber, what is the balance you see as being opportunities for you between this increasing shift into the intangible assets that are much harder to understand, analyze, accumulate, versus just doing the existing core insurance, you know, property, liability in a, in a slightly different way? Have you got a bias sort of towards the new or just doing the old slightly better? Well, it comes back to sort of the buccaneering spirit of the London market, really, to an extent. I mean, I was at a, a conference recently and somebody was listing the new products that Cuthbert Heath created at the turn of the 20th century. You know, the first motor policy, the first aviation policy. I mean, can you believe how difficult that would have been to try and craft an insurance policy for a plane? You know, brand new technology. I mean, and Lloyd's actually has made its name and reputation in creating these policies. You know, so I believe that, you know, writing things like political risk, trade credit, cyber, some of these new lines of, you know, buccaneering risk um, are very important for us to take. Now, I think we're better informed in taking those risks. It's not quite a seat of the pants as it probably was 100 years ago. But nevertheless, you look at the cyber market, it's a really, really evolving world. You know, we've got ransomware issues now and the hacking situations that, you know, are occurring daily. I mean, if you look at most large corporations, they're hacked several hundred times an hour. Um, you know, so these are the risks we're contending with and they take a lot of risk management. And they take a lot of bravery, actually, to go and write those risks. You know, but Lloyd's is a great place to do that because we syndicate the problem. We share the risk amongst many. Um, we share each other's experiences. We build insurance policies that are live and tangible, uh, that can be changed and adapted to evolving dynamic exposure. Uh, our pricing mechanisms do that too. Um, and we buy a lot of reinsurance. 
you know, so uh, it's all about risk management as well internally, as well as trying to do the job on the upfront risk. So, I mean, the insurance industry has to offer a product uh, in evolving exposure areas like cyber. And if you talk to most major Fortune 500 corporations, this is one of their biggest evolving problems, how to manage their data and how to protect themselves against a cyber hack. You know, because their, their machinery stops moving once they've been hacked um, and the world stops turning for that company. So it's a really, really important part of their risk management program. And it's really important that we offer a product. You know, so I think we need to be there as a market. Now, we've got to try and make some money out of that. And obviously, if you take something like cyber, like any new product, you know, it takes a while for people to work out the nuances around how to claim against it. You know, so we are seeing trends in the cyber market that we need to keep an eye on, uh, but we are keeping an eye on them. And as they evolve, we deal with them. And we deal with it in two ways. We deal with it in, in terms of helping the companies that we insure manage that risk. And then once we've done that, we then try and manage the insurance policy around that risk and the price for the product. And I just want to pick up on, on the entrepreneurial theme there. You mentioned earlier on the syndicate in a box as one of the examples of what Lloyd's is, is doing that is, is helpful in bringing new ideas in. Just for those that are not familiar with that, can you just talk a little bit about what that, that concept actually is? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, without getting into too much technical detail, it is intended to be a low-touch, low-frictional cost um, low administrative structure um, that allows smaller books of discrete business or individuals that have good ideas to come into Lloyd's without the sort of overarching regulatory and cost strain that would otherwise be associated with a full-blown syndicate. And it has, you know, certain conditions around it uh, that make it very different from a regular syndicate. Um, but it's meant to try and accommodate new ideas, new businesses, without the overarching scale, regulatory, um, and capital constraints that we'd otherwise face with a regular syndicate at Lloyd's. So I think it's a very earnest um, attempt by um, those that are working on the future of Lloyd's initiative to um, open the doors to a different type of customer, um, to a different type of entrepreneur or a startup uh, that would otherwise struggle to get into Lloyd's. Because if you look at the options at the moment for somebody that wants to start a business in Lloyd's, I mean, everybody tells me uh, that you need to be 200 to 300 million in size to make it work. I don't believe that. And we, our syndicate runs a, a 5% operating expense ratio against the market average of, I think, of 12. And we're 165 million gross. Um, so it can be done. Yeah, we can operate at very low operating expenses. So I don't buy the scale argument. Um, number one. Number two, the other constraint around Lloyd's is the capital model. You know, so if you look at a full-blown syndicate, the Solvency 2 model does not really allow um, for monoline starts because the capital strain on a monoline business is so intense that it doesn't make any financial sense. Um, so what then happens is you go into a multi-line um, strategy um, which is outside your comfort zone. You know, if you're an underwriter that specialises in casualty and you then find yourself having to balance that with cat and political risk and cyber and this and that, you end up in eight classes, seven of which you don't really understand. Um, the quality of underwriting drops um, and we've seen some of the results as a consequence of that. 
yeah, this is not the way we should be starting businesses. So I think I'm hopeful that um, Syndicate in a Box will provide um, the gap between a monoline entrepreneur and starting a full-blown syndicate. Um, or, a, or, a, or an individual with a good idea. It doesn't have to be a monoline entrepreneur. It can be a book of business. It can be an MGA that wants to put some skin in the game behind his own underwriting. It could be a number of things. So Syndicate in a Box is there to broaden the church of types of businesses that Lloyds can accommodate. And we so desperately need it because we've had some great underwriters start new syndicates in the last five or six years and they've really struggled. And they've struggled because of scale, the overarching regulatory regime, both at Lloyd's and the PRA. Um, and they've struggled with the Solvency 2 model, which means they've had to diversify. Um, and obviously the market, when you throw everything else into the ring, has been very soft. You know, so they're starting at a difficult time with a difficult structure, with very expensive overarching regulation. Um, you know, you have to go through a turnkey process because you're not allowed to start your own managing agent, which is probably right. Um, you know, that is a process that, you know, has, has changed from, from a regulatory standpoint. So when you add all that up, it makes it very difficult to make a new syndicate scalable and sustainable. So I'm hoping that the Lead Follow Initiative and Syndicate in a Box are going to be two areas where we can bring low-cost, low-touch, low-regulation enterprise into the London market. Excellent. Well, I know Lloyd's itself has had a lot of interest in the, in the syndicate in uh, a, a box. Just talking more broadly about Blueprint One, because that is obviously one of the elements of that and the future at Lloyd's, and you've talked earlier about your support for it in the team. But the plan, I think everybody would agree, is a great plan, but of course it's all now about the execution. It, what, in your mind, are the critical components that, that Lloyd's and, and everybody who's involved with this needs to get right to actually take this from a great vision into something that really has a true impact on the market? Well, I think the practitioners need to get with the program. You know, we've been very good at moaning about what's going on, you know, within the corporation and everything else. I mean, I actually think we've got great leadership now. Um, and I think we've now got some things that we can work with. You know, so everybody needs to look at the opportunity for what it is and start taking advantage of it. We certainly will be. Um, you know, I think what, Lloyd, what Lloyd's is trying to do is open the door to uh, more avenues of accessibility, and we need to embrace that. You know, so as practitioners, we need to look at ways in which we can use some of the proposals that are on the table. Now, these are all works in progress. I mean, if you look at Syndicate in a Box, it's a very, very broad church that they're trying to appeal to. So as you might expect, there's not a lot of specificity around how it works, you know, our view is until we try one, we won't really know and we are going to try one, you know. And, and I think that once we've looked at the nuances around it, it will either work or it won't. But, I mean, I think Lloyd's will work very hard if there is a good idea on the table to make it happen. Yeah, I mean, there seems to be a theme connecting these, which is this, the entrepreneurs you're seeing at Lloyd's, the, 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 the pride of being at Lloyd's, the vision, they're just getting on with it. And I think it also links back to something you said in the past about your experience at Carvel, where you're one of the second tier reinsurance brokers out there and you needed to compete against the, the big companies. For you, innovation was really important and it drove innovation and it was at the heart of the company. A lot of the challenges that seems to happen for the larger organizations, it just gets very difficult for innovation to flourish because any individual's impact is quite difficult to see in the organization. Of course, when you're at Willis, you would have seen more examples of that. I mean, 
what what so if you sort of compare the two, what in your experience when you're at Willis did you see worked for helping large organizations create the space and the freedom for people to go and innovate that actually really made it, you know, they could see it made a difference to the organization and the organization itself would sort of move into some new directions that they might not have seen if they hadn't encouraged that innovation to come from within? That's a very good question. I mean, you know, having spent 21 years at a firm that was wholly dependent on creativity, I mean, we couldn't survive unless we came up with a much better idea than some of our bigger, um, more dominant competitors. And we were very successful at doing that. And we really did some great work at Carville. Um, you know, the, the world sort of slightly overtook us because the power of the, the bigger brokers was so dominant um, in, you know, at the turn of the 21st century. I mean, um, they were putting so much business into the market with certainly the big reinsurance buyers that, you know, our ability, as, as, as creative as we were, to sustain the business became increasingly more difficult um, because we weren't really a niche player. We handled big casualty programs with lots of premiums on the slip. And that was the absolute focus for some of the larger brokers when it came down to you know, using their might and power. Um, so as creative as we were, we were increasingly finding it difficult to make an impact despite all of the good ideas. So it was very interesting when, 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 we, when we merged with Willis in 2009. Um, you know, all we had was our creativity. We didn't get invited to request for presentations and you know, all this other good stuff that the big brokers just take for granted. You know, so we came in with this sort of, you know, fresh approach of this is how we do our business. Uh, and it was very different. Now, that's not to say for one minute that there weren't some very creative people within the organization at Willis. There absolutely were. But there wasn't an embedded culture um, of, of creativity um, and entrepreneurialism. And it's very difficult to embed that culture uh, in a firm that size quickly. So it's sort of small touches on the tiller, really, um, in areas where you feel you can make an impact creative, creatively. Um, and I think we did that. I think the culture changed a lot um, in the period I was there, not, you know, not because of me. It was just I felt that um, we were much more front foot with the manner in which we went about our RFPs. Uh, we were much more front foot in our creativity. Uh, we took nothing for granted. Uh, we looked at our hit ratios much more closely. We, we became a lot more salesy, although we were an advisory business, but you've got to go out and sell your wares. But I think a lot of the big, big brokers are going through a lot of change now because they've all hit their market share um, capabilities and it's a question of where they go from here. So it is the ones that actually are going to be creative that will do better. Um, and there are some good independents now that have found their niche you know, companies like Tiger Risk and, and Beach, you know, we've, 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 uh, we use both of those brokers. They're very creative. Um, and it's nice to see, actually. I mean, I'd love to see a bit more of that in the market. And as, you, as you're talking there, it strikes me that the, there's a sort of parallel between what makes a great entrepreneur, which is this, both this vision on the one hand, but, but keep coming back to the metrics and measuring success and testing. Very similar to an underwriter is a combination of you've got to use the analytics, but you've also got to know when it's time to, to follow your instinct. Um, but I'd just like to sort of pivot a bit away from what you're doing at Beat in the Market and, and talk a bit about Slipcase. So you, you joined Alex Hearn, who founded Slipcase, uh, bringing together news across the market. Uh, it strikes me that you've got a lot of things going on already. Uh, what was it that sort of drew you to go and support Alex in his business? So I resolved that 
when we started Beat, I wasn't going to do um, any non-executive work uh, just because I felt I wanted to devote all of my efforts to the Beat project. Um, but two things came along, um, one of which was Hamden, which, as you know, is the, the largest provider of private capital to the market. Uh, and that had huge appeal to me, aside from the fact I think they're a fine company. Um, I'm a great and passionate believer in private capital. I think private capital will be the engine that drives the re-emergence of entrepreneurs in London. Um, and having the privilege of going on that board and being, to some degree, as a non-exec can be, uh, influential in private capital and the shape that that takes, uh, had real appeal. So I joined the Hamden board and I remain on that board and very happily so. They've got a couple of billion pounds uh, under management in the London market and they've got great potential. Um, and I think that that's where uh, some of the syndicate in the box initiatives will be backed at the outset. So that's very important to me. And the private capital has been very important to the beat business. So that was an obvious uh, non-exec job for me to do. Um, and then I bumped into Alex Hearn at an InsureTech conference, and he's a very, very uh, smart and intuitive young man um, with a great view of technology and the manner in which you can distribute information through markets. And we had a chat, and I enjoyed meeting him. Uh, he told me a bit about his business. Um, and then when we sort of reconvened in London, he asked me to be chairman of the company. Um, and which I've become and I've invested in the company. And I just think that um, the platform that he's building uh, to inform the market in a very, very focused and targeted way about what's relevant to them is very interesting. I mean, it's not a publishing business. It's an information gathering aggregator, if you like, for want of a better phrase. Um, and the market's crying out for it. I mean, at Willis Ree, when I ran that business, we were desperate for information. And, you know, we've got the insurance publications, but it needs to be a lot more broad than that. And it needs to be a lot more focused and targeted. Uh, and I think what Slipcase has done is crack that, frankly. Well, they're certainly in the process of cracking it. Um, so I'm very happy to be chairman of that company. I think that, I think Alex and his team are doing some outstanding work. I mean... It's frustrating when you see how progressive they are compared to some of the technology in our industry. It's, it's, you know, it's staggering, really, that we've been unable to embrace the sort of entrepreneurial capability that I see in a business like Slipcase. We're great fans of Alex, and you'll be uh, pleased to know, John, that our podcasts actually appear on uh, Slipcase as well. So you'll, you'll also be there uh, as, well as, as well as being chairman. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's also, I mean, they started off with, a, you know, technology was the heart of what they did right from the very beginning and built a business around that. I think it's a great example for all industries. Well, it's been great to have some time with you. Just before we wrap up, just one thing that would also be helpful for people is you clearly are doing a lot. I mean, a lot in a very effective kind of way. You're running beat, you're involved with Slipcase. Uh, You've got a family life, you play in a band, you know how to enjoy yourself. How, how do you make time for all those things? You've only got 24 hours in a day like the rest of us. You know, what, what are your tips for people out there trying to juggle all of these different priorities in their life? <laughs> well, you know, it's like the meaning of life really, isn't it? I mean, I, I, don't, I, I, I don't think I've really cracked it, if I'm being honest. Um, I mean, I found um, the most challenging part of my last job at Willis Free, the volume of travel. You know, I found myself being away five months of the year, which under any scrutiny puts your family life 
um, under a lot of pressure. Um, not material pressure, but, you know, it's, it's a challenge. So that was one of the reasons why I elected to step down when I did. Um, but I think it's important to not take yourself too seriously, uh, to make sure you get a good work-life balance, to find a good woman or man to marry, um, to, um, to have some fun, really, um, and, and, and don't, you know, keep it real and don't take it too seriously. I mean, that's easy to say. I mean, business is a very serious thing, but um, there are ways and means of enjoying it um, and keeping it balanced. I, I've worked very hard not to bring my work home, which is an important tenet. I mean, my wife will tell you that I really bring work home. Uh, I just feel that, you know, there needs to be off time. Uh, and I've been very disciplined about that. Um, but, you know, I've, I've had a fantastic career in the insurance market. I mean, when people ask me, you know, if they should come into our market, I say, absolutely, yes. I'm very happy to say my son works in the market. Um, you know, I've had a fantastic time in Lloyd's and the London market. It's given me you know, opportunities to see things around the world that I never would have seen. Um, it's a fantastic community, London. You know, I've made some great friends in the market. It's got great community spirit and we have fun. You know, I think it's important we keep that very firmly in our, our work-life balance. You know, you've got to have some fun. No, I completely agree. And to me, that above all, that is the one characteristic that I would say defines successful entrepreneurs. We see a lot of people out there starting businesses, but I would say unilaterally, those that actually make it beyond the first couple of years are those that keep smiling no matter what's going on so yeah clearly every time yeah, i see yeah. you you look like you're having a uh, a, a great time john so um, thank you for sharing that and thank you for your time some really fantastic insights in there thank you our uh, pleasure thank you that's it for this week but if you haven't already found them we've interviewed with lots more fascinating guests in this podcast series both to download and to listen or to read and share You'll find them on the Instec London website under the podcast tab. 